This is the Miller Report with Suzanne Miller on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And now, here's Suzanne Miller. Welcome to the Miller Report. I'm Suzanne Miller, CEO of Empire State Properties and founder of the Miller Report, hosted by WABC. Today, we have with us a icon, a leader, to me, a legend. He was the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Bill Clinton. He was the Attorney General of New York State for four years and ready, our beloved governor for 11 years. Welcome, Governor Andrew Cuomo, to the Miller Report. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for that kind introduction. Well, it's, really, it's a you pleasure know, to be with you. Thank you. You know, Governor, things have changed. It's been four years ago. I would turn on my TV every day, literally. We would sit in our little home. We were so nervous with our masks. I was wearing a bike helmet. And we'd turn you on. We would just watch the TV, and we would see what you had to say. My kids and I, and you were leading. You were the commander-in-chief. You really were. I, I don't know what has happened. What has happened in the four years from when you, when you were leading to today? Today, we have two wars. We've got China. We've got interest rates that are have doubled. We have our cities are being attacked. If you were the commander again in any one of those roles, what is the first thing you would tackle? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Uh, big question, multi, uh, multiple dimensions. Uh, but you're right. The world has changed, uh, not for the better. Uh, we have major problems almost on every level. Uh, international, what's going on with the Ukraine, uh, the tragedy in Israel, just the, the unspeakable tragedy, uh, which hurts my heart and I'm sure the heart of uh, every listener. Um, I took great pride as governor in uh, supporting Israel. My father before me, I was the, probably the strongest elected advocate for Israel. Every time Israel was attacked as governor, I would go visit uh, just to show our solidarity uh, when they needed help. Um, and people forget uh, this is not an isolated instance with Israel. They've been under attack uh, since the formation of the country, right? Uh, so my, my heart is with the people of Israel, the Jewish community here who is who's suffering greatly. So uh, we have international problems. We have domestic problems that we haven't seen in decades. Uh, and your expertise, uh, New York City, uh, and what's going on, uh, first, the world changed post-COVID. COVID was not just a, a moment and a trauma that we experienced. It, it was a life changer. Right. It changed society. It certainly changed the dynamic for cities. You mentioned Secretary of HUD. Uh, I was at HUD for eight years during the Clinton administration. Cities are organic places. Cities grow, cities die, right? Uh, and post-COVID, it's a different reality for cities. COVID changed the way we live and the way we work. Uh, if you said before COVID, well, I can't come to the meeting, but we can do it by Zoom. Yeah. They would say, what, what is that? Yes. What is that Zoom you know, you come to my office. No, we're going to lunch. No, you come to the conference room. Uh, 
cities were places of work. That's what formed cities. You went to the city to work. Well, now post-COVID, uh, I can do it by Zoom. I can do remote work. I can go to this, my office once a week, twice a week. They can't even get people to come five days a week. So it, it fundamentally changed the dynamic of a city, uh, the economics of the city. And it's not just New York. It's every city across the country. So uh, it's in many ways, uh, many ways made it more challenging for cities because I have to want to go there, right? Uh, the city has to be inviting in a way it wasn't before. Because I don't have to commute into the city. I don't have to get on the subways. I don't have to sit in the traffic. I can do business from home. It's not the same business. But, but Governor, I'm, I'm going to call you that because I'm hoping you will again one day. 2025. We're in 2025. And we need a post-COVID plan. What would it be? Well, a post-COVID plan, recognize, of what, recognize what COVID said. COVID said, uh, and let's stick with cities. Uh, or even states or regions of the country. You are now in a more competitive environment because people have choices. Uh, I, I can, I'm more mobile than ever before. I can move. I can move to a place that's warmer, right? I can move to a place that is more economically inviting. Uh, I can move to a place where the quality of life is better and where it's just easier to live. Uh, so it is a much more competitive environment for cities and states and regions of the country than it was pre-COVID. And we're seeing that. We're seeing demographic shifts. Now, uh, people don't appreciate, in New York, for many New Yorkers, you stayed in New York, you worked, and then you retired and you went to Florida, right? right? Everybody's grandparents went to Florida. Why? Well, because the climate and I get tired of shoveling snow and it's warm. And so there was a, there was a natural migratory path to Florida and other parts or the Carolinas or Arizona. That always happened. In some ways, COVID has accelerated that. Uh, and the conditions have accelerated that. New York City is an expensive place to live. State of California is an expensive place to live. The taxes are high. So now that I'm more mobile, let me then see what my options are. And I have more options than I ever had before. That has to be recognized by our leaders that they are in a competitive environment. They are trying to keep population. They're trying to attract population. And that is easier said than done. Cities like L.A. or Chicago or New York, they just existed with the supposition that, well, people will always be here. Right. New Yorkers will never leave New well, York. Well, I have to interrupt you, but 500,000 people did leave and most of them were high taxpayers. That so, is exactly right. So as governor, how would you that how would you exactly stop this right. exodus? That is exactly I mean, who's right. going to pay the bills? Yeah. The, first of all, the city. First, we have to recognize that reality. Mm -hmm. Right. People are more mobile. They will leave. How do we know that? Because they are leaving. Right. They have left. Well, who leaves? The people who are the most mobile are the people with wealth. Mm -hmm. 
They are the most mobile. They have the most flexibility. Uh, they have the most flexibility about where they work and how they work. And we have seen wealthy New Yorkers leave. The problem is the wealthy New Yorkers are the New Yorkers who pay the taxes. Uh, overwhelmingly, when you look at where the revenue comes from in New York, it is paid by wealthy New Yorkers. Over 90% of the revenue comes from wealthy New Yorkers. So when the wealth leaves, it has a dramatic economic impact. And this is how cities historically have gotten into trouble. You lose the wealth, you lose the revenue, you have less revenue to provide services. This quality of life deteriorates because there are fewer services, more people leave, right? That's the downward spiral that gets cities and states into trouble. So recognize that reality, and we are in the midst of that now. Um, recognize that when you raise taxes, you can actually be raising less revenue. Mm -hmm. You raise taxes, more wealth leaves, net, you actually receive less revenue. Recognize the fact that New York City has to be inviting. I have to want to come into the city. I have to want to go to a show. Uh, so the quality of life matters. My perception of the issue of crime. Am I safe in this city? Homelessness matters. Uh, the migrant situation on top of this now. All of that matters because it's my perception of how inviting I find the environment because I have new options. And I think we, we really haven't adjusted to that reality. You have the economic reality on taxes. And I, I, I think if you increase taxes on wealthy people, you will accelerate the exodus. I think crime, the perception of crime, you can quote statistics all day long. People feel the crime problem is worse. I remember when you were governor, you, during the George Floyd days, you were the advocate for funding the police. You wanted to get more police there. So now we have, how do we incentivize these police officers to join the academy? They, they, we couldn't even fill the academy this year. What would you do as well, governor? Well, look, we have, a, we have a political problem when it comes to crime and homelessness, et cetera. You have a social divide in this nation we've never had before. With the social divide has come a political divide. You have a far right and you have a far left. And those extremes really have been governing our political process. The far right, uh, in many ways, is the tail that wags the dog, or if you want to say far right, the tail that wags the elephant, if that's even physically possible. On the left, you have a very loud minority on the left that is governing much of the policy that the Democratic Party makes. So issue on the issue of crime, post-George Floyd, defund the police. A dumber statement has never been made than defund the police. David Dinkins becomes mayor of New York City, first black mayor, historic. We have a crime problem. Do you know what David Dinkins did? He increased the police force 52%. Common sense, guys. 52%. Well, today, we do, we, we, we do have to understand that there are new challenges for our policing. 
and new sensitivity and racial sensitivities. We also need a new model of policing. Not every 911 call requires a police officer with a gun, right? Uh, you, you know you have certain sophisticated problems that are being presented. You have mental health issues. You have substance abuse issues. Design a new public safety system that is more sophisticated for the situations we're facing. But you need public safety. People need to feel safe. And they don't. They don't. So right now, I think every single person in the world is watching what's going on in the Middle East. That is the biggest thing. And the one lesson I think we've all learned is that, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, that one of the reasons this happened is because they were fighting, the parties were fighting within themselves, the political parties, the right, the left, and they weren't paying attention. So have we not learned anything? Have we not, are you, we'll talk about the migrants. There's 130,000 people have come into New York City since the spring. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we haven't vetted a lot of these people. Do you think that we have an open border, that we're at risk for some kind of attack here? The migrant problem has exacerbated the, the situation in the cities. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And there was virtually no plan on how to handle them. You knew several million people would come into this country. You have one. Well, I just have to interrupt you. We're all Americans, and I'm for the migrants. I'm a fam- every single American's an immigrant, but it's a question of vetting and making sure that we know who they are. Well, we have now asylum seekers, mm-hmm. right? These are not people who came into the country illegally. They have come in legally, and they are seeking asylum. And we have a legal process to do that that says you can come into the country and you can be here while you seek asylum, and then you have a right to a hearing, et cetera. That's the law. But where do they go in the meantime? And who houses them and who feeds them and how do you educate them and where do they go? And how do you distribute the population across the country so it is manageable? And uh, what cities can benefit? from a workforce and what states can benefit from a workforce. So you're not concerned of an attack here because we're so busy in the Middle East. I am not concerned of an attack here because we are uh, so busy on the Middle East. I'm afraid of the dysfunction of the political system. I believe we can solve any problem we need to solve. It's not that we're overwhelmed with problems. It's our inability to craft and enact a solution because of the political divide. We're paralyzed. There is a political, great word, there is a political paralysis. So you take the migrants in New York City, 130,000, which, by the way, is a multiple of what other cities have received. Okay, here they are, New York City, they're on your doorstep. And by the way, Mayor Adams, they're your problem. And Mayor Adams says, well, hold on a second. I run a city. Mm-hmm. I'm dealing with homelessness. I'm dealing with crime. I'm dealing with sanitation, etc. When did migrants and immigration become a local problem? This is a federal issue. Right. And where is our federal government tell me. in managing it? Where is New York State in saying New York City is still part of New York State last time I checked? Right. And the state saying we're going to come in and we're going to help uh, and we're going to manage the problem. And to put this on a city, be it New York, be it Chicago, be it Los Angeles, be it Miami. No, no. Federal government, this immigration has always been a federal issue. The federal government determines who comes in. Uh, The federal government should take the lead 
on this issue. The states should be second in managing the issue. But to leave this to the cities on top of everything else they're dealing with that we just talked about post-COVID, crime, safety, etc., you just, you, you, you are, um, the mayor, uh, Mayor Adams will say it's killing New York City. I believe he's right because the migrants, the cost of housing, feeding, you're talking years before these people receive the first hearing, the first hearing to determine whether or not they can stay legally. In the meantime, they can't work. So if you were the president, I know you, you had aspirations at one time, how would you fix the border problem? Well, you said I had aspirations. I was... Well, we hoped. I could wish. All right. <laughs> Look, the, the, the question of asylum seekers and how we treat asylum seekers, that has been, that law hasn't been changed in decades. This is nothing new. You know, people say, oh, well, uh, all of a sudden. No, not all of a sudden. The law on asylum has been well established. You now have people using what at one time was a small loophole has become exploded as the rule. And people are now saying, uh, I don't want to wait on the list. I'm coming to seek asylum because I'm a victim of uh, political crime, etc. So I'm coming into the country to seek asylum, which is pursuant to the law. But where, how, who, who pays the bill? It can't be years before you have a hearing. The people have to work in the meantime. So they, were they're not sitting in a hotel at $200 a night and the taxpayers are paying the bill. Uh, that issue, no doubt, has aggravated everything the cities had to deal with to begin with, which was sense of increasing crime, homelessness, out of control, out of control. Uh, frankly, worse on the West Coast. You go to San Francisco, you go to Los Angeles. There Seattle. Were, yes, there are tent cities all over the place. We're being attacked. Let's move over to housing, a more pleasant issue. I know that you were director of, uh, you were secretary of HUD for, uh, you, I think you built a thousand homes, section eight homes. So we have, a, we have a crisis. We need affordable housing. At the same time, 420 when expired, which gave the developers an incentive to build. If I'm a developer, why would I build if I have, I'm capped on the rents I could charge, capped on what I could do, where I could build. And the taxes are going up, the insurance is going up, supply is going up. So I'm sitting on land. That's on the residential side. On the commercial side, we've got an office, the offices, the A buildings are doing okay. Like Hudson Yards is doing fine, but all the B buildings, the C buildings, the zoning. What would you do if you were back in that position? Yeah, well, let's start with some reality, uh, realities that the political system doesn't want to deal with. First, this is very much a function, I believe, of the new post-COVID world, right? You say the A buildings are doing well. The A buildings are the higher-end commercial properties. Yes, they are doing they're well. Doing extre- they're doing $200 a foot. Yes. The B and C, mm-hmm. uh, the less prime, if right. you will, commercial real, real estate, is suffering. Uh, and that is a very real problem. And that's tied into people not coming back to the city and businesses leaving, etc. And you have a shortage of affordable housing. On affordable housing, the political reality is, and the left of the Democratic Party doesn't like to hear this, you have to subsidize affordable housing. It doesn't happen otherwise. It's math. You have the cost of land, you have the cost of construction. If you want to keep the rent down, you must subsidize 
the project. You can subsidize it with cash, Section 8 certificates. You can subsidize it with uh, tax-exempt financing. You can subsidize it with tax credits. But government must provide a subsidy. Oh, well, now you're talking about uh, subsidizing landlords and subsidizing corporations, and we don't want to do that. Well, then you, they're not going to build affordable housing. Isn't that called capitalism? Well, but <laughs> Yeah, but see, capitalism, then you'll trigger a political backlash. It's math. The numbers do not work. I cannot charge an affordable rent if I have to pay X for the land and Y to build. 421A is the name of an affordable housing program that we had operating in the state. It was not renewed. So we virtually have no real effort on affordable housing in the state, which is inexcusable. Especially when you have all these vacant buildings downtown, they need it. And now you have these onerous zoning laws. So you have to tell me where I could build, how much I could build, who I could build to. Yes. How do we fix that? Yes. I think uh, there is a moment or there was a moment, windows probably still open, put the two together. You have B and C properties that are now underwater and are not economically feasible. Uh, If you ever mark those to market, by the way, you're going to see a real financial collapse of whoever's holding that paper and those mortgages. and they're coming due soon. That's right. Why not get creative with the B and C properties and find a way to convert them to residential and, and create affordable housing while addressing the B and C issue. Solve the B and C problem and solve the affordable housing problem by putting the two together. Well, you'd have to change zoning laws. And yes, yes, but you know what? You have to change. You have to change because circumstances have changed. And the situation has changed. Now, change is hard, right? Everybody likes change in theory, right? Husband and wife are sitting at the table in the morning, and the husband looks at the wife and says, you know, things have to change. Wife looks at the husband and says, yeah, things have to change. Yeah. But each one is really talking about the other one changing, right? (laughs) Sounds like us. They're just fine. Change, we like control. We like the status quo. Uh, Change is hard and change is disruptive. And in this political climate of extremes and paralysis, oh, you're going to suggest change. The voices of opposition are so loud and so irrational that change is so difficult and therefore progress is frustrated. And we're seeing that. We're not changing to the new reality. The cities, regions, states, when I was health secretary, I would go into a city and I would say, you know what, count the number of cranes that you see. Oh, there were so many when you were with us. Yes. You look at the number of cranes that are building. That is your barometer for the future because you are either growing or you are dying. Either you're growing and building or you're going backwards. And right now, we're not building, we're not growing. And progress that people can see, right? New LaGuardia Airport. I think you did that. I did that. You did Second Avenue Subway. Second Avenue Subway, New Moynihan train station, new Mario Cuomo Bridge over the Hudson River after talking about it for 30 years. Why? Oh, 
Did you see the new bridge? Did you see the new airport? New York is doing well. There's a sign of progress. That's hope. I want to be part of this place because I see signs of progress. I see signs of a better future. Uh, and that then attracts people and it becomes self-fulfilling. You believe New York City is doing well. You want to be part of New York City. Uh, you're a real estate investor and you land at a new LaGuardia airport and you say, wow, I want to invest in this place because this place has a future, right? It's infectious one way or the other. Uh, you see signs of growth and positivity. Uh, you want to be part of it and you want to buy real estate or you want to improve your real estate because you think there's a future. The inverse is also true. You see signs of decline you see homeless on the streets, you see people uh, afraid to go out at night, you retreat. And uh, that's, that's the situation we're in right now. We're not showing enough progress, enough growth, enough positivity, and the negativity compounds and actually makes the situation worse. New York City this year, transactions are lowest than they were even before 2010. Well, it's 25% down, maybe, that's, and that's just what the brokers are saying. I think more like 35%. New York is becoming a pied-a-terre kind of town. They're using it as secondary homes, temporary home uh, apartments like I own, Empire State Properties, that company. We're doing fantastic because everybody's temporary. They're selling their apartments and they're moving out, and we need to stop the exodus. Let's move on to congestion pricing. Do you think that will help? Will it help the MTA? What's your thoughts on that? The... Uh MTA first, the challenge is public safety. I have to feel safe on the train. And traffic congestion is horrific in New York right now. Why? Because ridership on public transportation is down. Why? Because people don't feel safe. Uh, I'm uh, older than you are. I remember... When you got on those trains and you took off your watch and you took off any jewelry and you walked up and down the train and you looked to find where the police officer was on the train or on the station you went and you stood next to the police officer because you were frightened to be there. It's not as bad as it was in the 70s, but people don't feel safe riding the subways. That isn't a situation that can be remedied, right? As we discussed before with public safety. I hired more police officers. That time the mayor, different mayor than Mayor Adams, uh, didn't want to hire more police, right? George Floyd, uh, police hmm. are part, part of the problem. I hired police just for the MTA, more MTA police. Feel safe when you're on the subway. So how will congestion pricing coming. fix that? Congestion pricing funds the M increases funding for the MTA. Downside is it makes it more expensive to come into the city. So it's another negative, another barrier. It's like a nail, another nail in the coffin. Right. And if the MTA is not going to become safer, you're not going to get the ridership back anyway. So unless you address the fundamental problem, which is public safety on the transportation system, it doesn't make a difference. Look, we did a lot of good with the, that Second Avenue subway. You want to talk about how a transportation project it was amazing can have a positive impact. 
the east side of Manhattan exploded with the Second Avenue subway, which is a new subway line, and it's a beautiful line, it's the queue, right? if I must say so myself. Uh, the stations are clean and welcoming, and we have art in the subway stations and, and a lot of architectural details that I think. But Second Avenue East, that real estate exploded in value because now you're one block, right, from the Second Avenue subway. There was a time when the MTA wanted to close a tunnel to uh, Brooklyn for the L train, and they said it was going to be closed for two years. And the real estate in Brooklyn plummeted because they said, well, if I can't get into Manhattan through the subway system, literally the real estate plummeted. I went to the MTA and I said, this can't be. There has to be another way. We actually found a way to rebuild the tunnel without closing the tunnel, the real estate went up. So these things are all interconnected. And the good news is you can change the trajectory, but you have to change the trajectory. It doesn't sound like you're for congestion pricing. You want safer subways. Congestion pricing, getting more money to the MTA. Yes, the MTA needs money if the MTA spends it intelligently, if they have construction projects that actually work intelligently, but unless you solve the public safety problem, right. nothing, nothing matters, in my opinion. What about the casinos? They're, they're, everybody's vetting for a casino. You've got Hudson Yards, you've got Related, you've got Bernardo. Do you think it should be in the city or outside the city? And do you think we're going to get it? We started with casinos only in upstate New York. Uh, look, casinos, when I was at HUD, I saw too many cities that believed the panacea was a casino. We'll get a casino, and then we're going to have billions of dollars, and our lives are going Wait, to— Wait, does that come with or without the marijuana? Well, the, yeah, <laughs> the marijuana was a different law. But so casinos themselves are not a panacea. Having said that, uh, I passed casinos for upstate New York. Why? Because upstate New York always uh, was suffering economically, was in a different economic position than downstate New York— and casinos in upstate New York and people from New York City would go upstate to the casinos rather than to Atlantic City where you already had casinos in New Jersey. That made sense to me. And it was a great economic boost for upstate New York. Now the casino in New York City, uh, yes, it's going to be very attractive. Uh, I don't believe it's a panacea. Uh, you already, and you now are going to have a very messy political and legal situation because you have so many people vying for casinos. You have a couple of casinos, what they call racinos. They're not really casinos. Uh, out at Aqueduct and Yonkers uh, that believe uh, they should get the casino license because they already exist. You have other bids, as you mentioned, in Manhattan, and the process has been slowed. So I think you're talking about a long time off and a very messy process. I wouldn't be surprised if there were lawsuits and investigations, but I don't see that as that's not going to happen uh, in the immediate future. Uh, I believe. And it's not going to be the panacea that uh, people suggest. We're not going to open a casino in Manhattan and happy days are here again. That's not going to happen. 
I want to go back, and we're winding up here, but you know, I think, again, as I said, the biggest issue is safety and, and having America come first. And this is, it's, we're all immigrants, and we're all in this together. And I used to say to my kids, and it's unfortunate because my parents were in the war in the Holocaust, and we used to say that what unites us is war. And unfortunately, that's what's happening in Israel. And I think we have lessons to be learned there. And Governor, I, I mean this wholeheartedly, if you were, again, in charge of us, we gave you the keys how would you bring us together? I, mean, I remember I had lunch last week with Father Alex, yes. and nobody is this. He's the most incredible man, and you don't, you you have he. He's like the Pope to me, and he said something that's very special. And he said, "True real estate, that the real value of real estate starts with the heart, and we have a lot to learn about that. And if you could be that person again, and forget about right, left, social, not, we need to be come together. How can you help us? Wow." First, you're right, so right about Father Alex. Uh, he is he's a great uh, spiritual leader in the Greek Orthodox Church, but he's he's uh, really a spirit, spiritual leader for all New Yorkers. Uh, we did great work together building St. Nick's, St. Nicholas, uh, Greek Orthodox Church on the 9-11 I site. I remember. They put it back? Yes, finally. Yes. Finally. And uh, I was very helpful uh, in making that happen. I'm very proud of that. Look, uh, far left, far right. The truth has always been, we're Democrats, we're Republicans. We're New Yorkers first, and we have become preoccupied at looking at what's different rather than focusing on the similarities. If you want to find differences, you will find them. If you want to find reasons for divisions and anger, you can find them. You can also find the commonality, and you can find the, the similarities, and you can find the common platform that binds us. And that's the key to New York, because New York, there is no place more diverse than New York. By definition, we are all different, and we all came from different places. You want to talk about our differences— you can do that all day long, and uh, we have more differences than probably any state in the United States. Uh, the very few places on the globe that have as many different religions and ethnicities that we have. The inverse is we have the same commonalities in terms of principles and values, and that's what I focused on as governor. I was a Democrat. No, I represented the people of the state of New York. If you're a Democrat, if you're a Republican, if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim. And I focused on the commonalities and what worked for all of us and making our shared values a reality. We believe everyone should have opportunity. We believe no one should be discriminated against. We believe everyone should have a good quality public school education because that's the ladder of opportunity. Uh, we believe if people are willing to work and they are responsible, that we should work with them to better themselves. Focus on the commonalities uh, and focus on what brings us together rather than what divides us. Uh, and yes, let them yell on the extremes. Uh, you're not going to make everyone happy. By definition, in life, you're not going to make everyone happy. And you're not going to make everybody happy in politics. But do the right thing, and people will wind up respecting you for the right thing. That's what I always aspired to do. And frankly, whether they were upstate or downstate, they were Democrat or Republican, people would say, you know what? I disagree with you on this. 
I disagreed with you on marijuana. I disagreed with you on abortion. But I respected the leadership. And we I have respected a crisis the position. now. This yes. is, it's much more important that we protect the United States and we are united than parties. Do you agree? Yes. So how could we bridge that so that we could become the United States again? Well, the, we have to stop allowing, and I say this to both parties, we have to stop allowing the extremes to overwhelm rationality. Yes. Rationality. Common sense. Common sense. Rational thought. Uh, you have extremist ideologies on the right, on the left, and I don't believe there's a moral equivalency. I think, frankly, the far right uh, is more extreme than the left, but we have extremists on the left. Uh, you see that when it comes to addressing the issue of crime. The Democrats are paralyzed. They can't even talk about crime. You see that when it comes to dealing with the homeless. Uh, you see that on affordable housing, 421A. That's the common sense Democrats losing to the extremist Democrats. That's what that is. Because common sense says you have to keep people safe and we have a crime problem. And by the way, the victims of crime, 70 to 80 percent are black and brown, which is the base of the Democratic Party. So you're not even serving your own people. We have to stop being governed by the loudest room and start being governed by the smartest, most practical, rational direction forward. Uh, you're never going to find perfect. You're never going to find everyone agreeing. But when you do nothing, it is an affirmative decision to continue the status quo. That's what many politicians don't get. Well, if I do nothing, I'm safe. No. If you do nothing, the status quo continues, and the status quo is negative, and we are getting worse. If you don't do something about crime, it's going to get worse. If you don't do something about homelessness, it's going to get worse. If you don't do something about the tax conditions, more people will leave, and it will get worse. That's what we have to accept. Well, if I do something, I'll get criticized. You know what? If you're afraid of criticism, don't run for office, right? Uh, if you're afraid of criticism, don't leave your house, first of all. But if you leave your house, certainly don't enter politics. Because in this environment, it is going to happen. You are going to be criticized. But I believe if you do the right thing, uh, you do it for the right reasons, you will be respected and people will appreciate that you made their life better. And that's what this is all about. Why do you go into government? You go into government to make people's lives better, to improve the situation, not to perfect the situation, but to improve it. Uh, and when you improve it, people appreciate it and they get it. But as we'll end where we started, we are in a situation of political paralysis, you and have, that's a death sentence. You have politics in your blood. You're, you grew up with it. It's in your genes. It's in every ore of you. Would you run again? Well, I grew up in a house where, at a kitchen table where my father, God rest his soul, Mario Cuomo, 
had such a profound respect for public service and spoke about it in almost religious terms, you know, that it was such a such a worthy way to spend your time and use your talent. You were serving other people. You were helping other people. And God bless you because that's that's the best and highest use of your talents, right? Every religion said it. Matthew 25 says it. Judaism, tikkun olam, repair the breach, be part of the solution, be positive, uh, actually help people. And public service gives you that opportunity to do it. I'm hearing a a yes. Look at how many, you're hearing a long yes, but (laughs) look at how many people we raise the minimum wage. Millions of people's lives were changed. Free college tuition for the middle class up to $150,000. Children now went to college who couldn't go to college otherwise. First state to pass marriage equality, big state, before the Supreme Court gave people relationships and allowed their love to be legitimized. And I think spurred the conversation in this nation and spurred the Supreme Court to ultimately act. We changed life for the better for millions, the capital construction projects. It made life better for millions. Only public service gives you that opportunity. So I I loved public service. I'm still passionate about public service. Uh, What am am I going to do in the future? I don't know. I'm at a stage now where I I enjoy the moment and I live in the moment and I don't don't try to figure it all out, Suzanne. You know, sometimes God has a plan, but uh, I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now. I'm speaking about the issues that I I choose to speak about. I fight the fights that I choose uh, to fight. I'm fighting on behalf of Israel now because people have to understand the facts they have to understand that uh, how terrifying Hamas is and how Hamas has terrorized the Palestinian people. You know, forget trying to teach people history. That's over. Uh, but the present Hamas victimizes the people in Palestine the same way they victimize the people in Israel. Right. There's there's no moral equivalency there. And we have always been. Uh, with the people of Israel for our interest as well as the interests of the Middle East and the people in Israel. A new way to do uh, public safety and addressing the crime issue because Democrats have to have an answer and they can't put their head in the sand. That doesn't work. Denying a problem never solves anything. You'll never solve a problem that you are unwilling to admit We have a problem on the issue of crime. Well, it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. It's also simple. People feel unsafe. Deal with it. Well, it's tough in the Democratic Party because the far left is anti-police. Yeah, well, deal with it because we have a real problem on the issue of crime. So those are, I, I take on the fights that I want to take on right now, advocate the issues that I want to advocate, and um, enjoy life a little bit, too. You know, I worked, listening to you rattle off that bio, I was uh, eight years HUD, four years uh, attorney, attorney general, general, 11 years governor, 
so a little bit, I'm living life, which isn't so bad. I like what you said about Hamas because it's the fight, and you've been brave. You've always been brave. W watching you and seeing you now, we need leaders like you. And it's you know the Jews are now, but they're it's it's that's just the first line of defense because they're coming after everybody. Governor, I understand Melissa DeRosa has a book coming out on Tuesday about you. It's called What's Left Unsaid. Have you had a chance to read it? Uh, the book comes out, uh, uh, has just come out. It is a great book because it is Melissa DeRosa was secretary to the governor. You say secretary to the governor, people think uh, stenographer. Uh, <laughs> it was secretary is a constitutional title federal government secretary of HUD, right? But she's highest uh, appointed official, first woman to ever serve as secretary to the governor, basically chief of staff. Uh, during the COVID briefings, you saw her sitting right next to me during all the COVID briefings. Uh, so she put a, wrote a book that tells uh, of her experience in the administration through COVID with the uh, accusations that were made about me. And it's, it's a book that I think people should read because facts still matter. And the book tells the truth and the facts, not the Republican facts, not the Democratic facts, not the New York Times facts, not the Fox News facts, the actual facts. What's happening today is we have media that is in many ways tailored to their audience. I'm a conservative, so I watch Fox. Okay, I'm a liberal, so I read the New York Times. Yeah, but then you are getting selected news through a selected lens. Excuse me for interrupting you, but you want to talk about facts. Fact, here are the facts. Four years ago, we watched you on TV. Four years ago, you led us. Four years ago, we were safe. Four years ago, our systems were not failing. We're under attack now. We have two wars going on. We have a real estate interest rates. Nobody could finance anything. Buildings are collapsing. So that's the facts. Thank you, Governor, for coming on the Miller Report. I love what you've done. You've led us before. I have a feeling you're going to lead us again. And I look forward to watching you back on TV. Thank you. Governor. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Suzanne. And thank you for what you do for this city and for this state, uh, because you do it incredibly well. So keep going. Thank okay. you for having me. Thank you. Dear listeners, thank you for coming on my podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please download, subscribe, and share. Thank you so much. Bye.